Hebrews chapter 11, we begin in verse 1. This is the word of God. Let us hear it. Now faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. For by it the elders obtained a good report. Through faith we understand that the worlds were framed by the word of God, so that things which are seen were not made of things which do appear. By faith Abel offered unto God a more excellent sacrifice than Cain, by which he obtained witness that he was righteous, God testifying of his gifts, and by it he, being dead, yet speaketh. By faith Enoch was translated that he should not see death, and was not found because God had translated him. For before his translation he had this testimony, that he pleased God. But without faith it is impossible to please him. For he that cometh to God must believe that he is, and that he is a rewarder of them that diligently seek him. By faith Noah, being warned of God of things not seen as yet, moved with fear, prepared an ark to the saving of his house, by the which he condemned the world and became heir of the righteousness which is by faith. Amen. We'll end our reading in verse 7. We know the Lord will add his blessing to the reading of his word for his name's sake. And it is to verse 7 that I want to call your attention in particular. Very familiar Old Testament character. By faith, Noah, being warned of God of things not seen as yet, moved with fear, prepared an ark to the saving of his house, by the which he condemned the world and became heir of the righteousness which is by faith. I believe the key to this 11th chapter in Hebrews is found in a couple of verses that lead into the chapter, found in chapter 10, that is. In verses 37 and 38, we read in that chapter, For yet a little while, <clears throat> and he that shall come will come, and will not tarry. Now the just shall live by faith. And I think the emphasis in verse 38 is on that word now. Now, in this present hour, now, at this time, the just shall live by faith. That's actually a text that is found in the Old Testament, found in the book of Habakkuk. And it's cited three times in the New Testament. You'll find it in Romans, you'll find it in Galatians, you'll find it here in Hebrews. And each time the emphasis is just a little bit different. In Romans, I think the emphasis is on the just. The just shall live by faith. And who are they? Well, Romans uh, is devoted to describing them for you. They are the ones that have Christ's righteousness imputed to them. In Galatians, I think the emphasis is on the faith from the formula, the just shall live by faith in contrast to works which is what the Galatians were being lured into believing, thinking that somehow they could contribute or improve upon the righteousness that had been freely imputed to them. So in their case, there was a call back to faith. And here now in Hebrews chapter 10, I think the emphasis is on this word now. 
bearing application to the present time, especially the present time of the Hebrew Christians to whom this epistle is addressed. Now the just shall live by faith. You might say then that this 11th chapter of Hebrews is devoted to answering the question, what does it mean then to live by faith? What does that mean? And the first thing the author does in order to answer such a question is to demonstrate a contrast to living by faith. That contrast is created in the definition that the author gives to faith in verse 1. Look at what it says there. Now faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. Things hoped for are future, and things not seen have something in common with things hoped for. Both are unseen things. Sight places emphasis on things that are seen. Faith places emphasis on things that are not seen. And the temptation that the Hebrew Christians were facing, which is the same temptation that we as Christians often face today, is the temptation of ascribing greater ultimacy to the things we see than what we ascribe to the things that we don't see. The things of this world seem to press upon us a reality of their own that makes the unseen things seem unreal. And when we succumb to such a temptation, then the things of God, and indeed God himself, in a sense, becomes more theory than reality. And things that are transient in nature are assigned a higher value than what they deserve. And so this matter of walking by faith is of utmost importance, and this is why we find an entire chapter devoted to that very subject. This afternoon, I'll direct your attention to one of the most well-known characters in the Old Testament. It's the character of Noah. I love what the narrative in Genesis says about this man, for it keeps us from exalting him higher than we should. It says in Genesis chapter 6 and verse 8 that Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. That statement, Noah finding grace, is given to us in a context of God being so grieved with the state of the world that he, in a sense, regrets having made man, and he is determined, therefore, to bring judgment upon man. But in the context of that statement, of the sinfulness of man, we read then that statement I just read, but Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. He found undeserved favor, in other words. In the verse that follows, Genesis 6 and verse 9, we are told that Noah was a just man and that he walked with the Lord. We're also told in chapter 7 of verse 1 that the Lord said unto Noah, Come thou and all thy house into the ark, for thee have I seen righteous before me in this generation. Now the thing we have to keep in mind then is that these statements about Noah being just and Noah being righteous have to be understood in the light of Noah finding grace 
in the eyes of the Lord. If Noah possessed inherent righteousness, he would not have been in any need of grace. Our text in Hebrews clarifies this matter completely by telling us that Noah became heir of the righteousness which is by faith. So it is not hard to perceive that the author of Hebrews, and I suppose this could be a good argument for the Pauline uh, authorship of Hebrews, it certainly reflects the truth of justification by faith. Noah gained his righteousness by his faith. He gained the same kind of righteousness that Abel back in Genesis obtained. It was the righteousness grounded in that more excellent sacrifice which pointed to the sacrifice of Christ. And just like Abraham and David that are referenced by Paul in Romans 4, Noah was the recipient of Christ's righteousness being imputed to him and received by faith. What I want to consider then this afternoon in the closing moments is this example then of Noah. Remember the question I raised a moment ago, what does it mean to live by faith? And today I want Noah to answer that question for us. What it means to live by faith from the example of Noah. Consider first, living by faith means that we heed the warning of God regarding judgment. We heed the warning of God regarding judgment. Notice how verse 7 begins. By faith, Noah, being warned of God, of things not seen as yet, moved with fear, prepared an ark to the saving of his house. Notice here yet another reference to the relationship between faith and things not seen. Noah was warned of God of things not seen at that point in time. You know, of course, if you're familiar with the story of Noah, that Noah was warned of God about coming judgment. Can I pause here to pass on a plug that Ken Ham I know would approve of? If you're familiar with the Creation Museum, you're probably familiar with Ken Ham's attitude toward those who try to Oh, what's the right word for it? They, they, they play down the solemnity of the story of Moses or, or, or Noah. He cannot stand those cute little designs that you might see on the wall, which shows a little ark and the heads of all the animals sticking out. And the reason for that is because that runs so contrary to the type of narrative uh, that is given to us about Noah. This was a warning of judgment. The whole story of Noah is a story of worldwide judgment. So we read in Genesis 6 and verse 13, And God said unto Noah, The end of all flesh has come before me, for the earth is filled with violence through them, and behold, I will destroy them with the earth. Now, we know from the many historical narratives that we find in scriptures that God is true to his word 
And this faithfulness pertains not only to the promise that God gives regarding salvation, but this faithfulness to his word also pertains to the threatenings that God gives regarding judgment. The word was given to Noah somewhere in the area of 120 years before that judgment came. And we know from the narrative in Genesis that the judgment did indeed come through a universal flood. We know also in the history of Israel that they were warned about the judgment that would come if they failed to repent of their sins and return to the Lord their God. And we have the account of that judgment coming upon them, first upon the northern kingdom, and then later judgment upon the southern kingdom as well. God, you see, doesn't merely use the subject of judgment as a mere scare tactic without being serious about the execution of his judgment. We as parents may do that. How often do we threaten and warn our children of punishment to come and then seem to forget about it? would take too much effort on our part to actually get up out of our chairs to administer the necessary discipline. So I will instead issue uh, endless um, words of judgment. And if we issue many threats but never exercise our threats, and children soon learn that they really don't need to take those threats too seriously. This is the same kind of rationale that governed the rebellious world in Noah's day, and that governs the rebellious world to a great degree in our own day. So Peter writes in his second epistle, chapter 2, beginning in verse 3, knowing this first, that there shall come in the last days scoffers, walking after their own lusts and saying, Where is the promise of his coming? For since the fathers fell asleep, all things continue as they were from the beginning of the creation. For this they willingly are ignorant of, that the word of God, that by the word of God the heavens were of old, and the earth standing out of the water and in the water, whereby the world that then was being overflowed with water perished. The point being that God did bring the judgment that he said would come. Here then is the danger of walking by sight rather than by faith. You see the world as it is, and you note the continuity of the world the way it is, and this kind of sight leads a sinner to be willfully ignorant of history, a history which reveals that the world was indeed judged by the flood, and therefore that sinner is willfully ignorant of the judgment to come. Those who walk by faith know better because they know something of the character of God. They've been delivered from the rebellious propensity of suppressing the knowledge of God and the knowledge of God's judgment. And they also know something of what sin deserves. They know that Sin calls for judgment. And in the delay of the execution of that judgment, they know that God hasn't forgotten about judgment, but God is being gracious by being long-suffering. 
I've said it before from this pulpit that the warnings of judgment are actually manifestations of God's grace. I think, for example, of Jonah. You remember that prophet? He didn't want to go to Nineveh and preach the word of the Lord there. But at last he did. It took being swallowed by a whale and down to the depths, the bottoms of the mountains, and up again and spit out on the shore, so to speak, to make him willing. But in the end he was. So he goes to Nineveh, and his message is very simple. Forty days and Nineveh's got to be judged. Something very unusual happens. The Spirit of God moves, and they sense the reality of what they've just heard from the prophet, and that leads to them intensely repenting of their sins, and the judgment is spared, and that grieves Jonah. Rather interesting, I believe it's in the fourth chapter, last chapter of the book, where Jonah is complaining to God and says to him, It's because I knew that thou art a gracious God that I did not want to go to Nineveh. Well, where in his message to Nineveh do you find any word of grace? Uh, You don't. Forty days and yet Nineveh shall be judged. I would suggest to you that was a manifestation of God's grace because they were given time. They were given 40 days to repent of their sins. And they responded to it. God wasn't obligated to wait 40 days before he executed judgment. But he did. And so the very uh, proclamation of judgment is a matter of grace. Okay? Sinners sometimes treat such warnings as the mad rants of fire and brimstone preachers. But in fact, such warnings are given by a God who gives men space to repent of their sins and flee to Christ. What does it mean then to live by faith? Well, after the example of Noah, we learn that living by faith means taking God's warning seriously. Just as surely as a flood destroyed this world once, so according to God's word, the heavens will be dissolved by fire and the elements of this world will melt with fervent heat, Second Peter 3.12. The Hebrews needed to be impressed with the reality of such judgment so that they might know how to compare their light afflictions to that coming day. So should we ever keep that judgment in mind lest we become too attached to a world that will soon pass. By taking the issue of judgment seriously in our walk by faith, we will also take seriously the need and the obligation on our part to sound the warning to those that are around us and to those we love. Too often we hold back for fear of a little reproach, Oh, what will that reproach amount to in comparison to the judgment that's to come to the Christ rejecter? May the Lord help us then to walk by faith. This matter becomes even more heightened when we consider next that living by faith means that we are moved by fear. Living by faith means we are moved by fear, and I am going to qualify that word, okay? But let's just read it, verse 7. 
By faith, Noah, being warned of God of things not seen as yet, moved with fear, prepared an ark to the saving of his house. It is, of course, a fearful thing to receive a word from God that says he will destroy the world and everything in it. It is a fearful thing to receive a word of judgment from one who is all-knowing and all-powerful and has the sure capability of making his word good. And for us, it should be a fearful thing to contemplate, looking for and hasting unto the coming of the day of God, wherein the heavens being on fire shall be dissolved and the elements shall melt with fervent heat. 2 Peter 3.12 And so back in Hebrews 10, we are told in verse 31, it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. And a few verses earlier, we read of those that fall away from Christ, that there remains nothing more for them but a certain fearful looking for of judgment and fiery indignation which shall devour the adversaries. And you can see the apostles' purpose here in encouraging those that were tempted to let go of Christ, to abandon Christ, to go back to apostate Judaism, and he works righteousness system. Oh, if you go that route, Paul is saying, then there is nothing for you but a certain fearful looking for of judgment and fiery indignation. You've just nullified the means for gaining heaven. You've just nullified the atonement for salvation by turning away from Christ. So don't turn away from him. Consider the consequences. Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 5 and verse 10 that we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. And in the very next verse, he lets his readers know that there is a fearful element to that. Knowing, therefore, the terror of the Lord We persuade men, he writes in verse 11. And so we cannot escape a certain sense of dread by the very nature of judgment that it brings to our souls. Even the most eminent saints of God trembled when they were brought into the presence of God. Moses feared and quaked, we're told, in Hebrews 12, 21. Isaiah pronounced woe upon himself when he beheld the Lord's glory in Isaiah 6. Daniel fell to his face and had no power to stand before God until the Lord strengthened him, we discover in Daniel 10. Ezekiel fell upon his face in Ezekiel 1 when he beheld the revelation of the glory of God and could not rise until the Spirit of God entered him and enabled him. And John on the Isle of Patmos we're told, fell on his face as a dead man in Revelation 1 when he beheld the glory of Christ. Should we be so presumptuous as to think that it will not be the same for us when at last we stand before Christ? The fear of God begins with the knowledge of God's holiness and his splendor and his might. And these accounts of the glory of God and the effects of that glory on the saints of God are given to us that we too might learn that there is something of a terrible aspect to the fear of the Lord. 
This, to me, is what makes much of contemporary Christianity so repugnant. There is no sense of this awesome splendor and terrible majesty of God. There is little of the kind of attitude that is called for in Habakkuk chapter 2 and verse 20, where we read that the Lord is in his holy temple, let all the earth keep silence before him. I believe this is where Noah's faith began then. Being warned of God, he was moved with fear. It would not be correct, however, to say that his fear went no further than to tremble at the prospects of coming judgment. That's why I said at the outset of this point, I need to qualify this word. There is an element of uh, terrible fright to it. That's undeniable. But that's not the entire concept, not by any means. By faith, Noah, being warned of God of things not seen as yet, moved with fear, prepared an ark to the saving of his house. He responded, in other words, to God's provision for the salvation of his house. The ark, you see, was that provision. It was God that told Noah to build the ark. It was God that gave Noah the design and dimensions of the ark. It was God in Genesis 7 and verse 1 that extended the invitation to Noah and his house to enter the ark. And it was the Lord in Genesis 7 and verse 16 that shut Noah and his family into the ark. And once Noah and his family were shut into the ark, they were shielded from that judgment to come. So Noah's faith not only took the warning of judgment seriously, but Noah's faith also compelled him to submit to God's plan of salvation. It's the same for you and me today. Our faith should compel us to take the warnings of God's judgment seriously, but our faith, being moved with fear, should also compel us to flee to Christ. Christ, you see, is God's provision for our salvation, just as Noah and his house found shelter and protection from the storm of God's wrath, so being joined to Christ shields us from the judgment to come. Christ's death on Calvary's cross, you see, was a terrible manifestation of judgment. And here is yet again a scene that ought to convince us that the threatenings of judgment are no idle threats from God. He judged his own son when his son stood in our place. This is why we sing, bearing shame and scoffing rude, in my place condemned he stood, sealed my pardon with his blood. Hallelujah. What a Savior. Now in the case of Noah, we are given in the narrative of Genesis something of an account of the judgment that came upon the world. We read the fountains of the great deep were broken up, Genesis seven eleven, and the windows of heaven were opened, and the rain was upon the earth forty days and forty nights. So we're given something of a description of that judgment, hard as it is to envision. When it comes to the judgment of Christ, however, we enter into a realm that cannot be penetrated. 
We read how there was darkness upon the earth from the sixth to the ninth hour, and it was during that time of impenetrable darkness that we hear the cry that came from Christ, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Here is Christ functioning as our propitiation. Here is Christ bearing his Father's wrath that you and I might be shielded from that wrath just as Noah and his family were shielded from that storm. And when we by faith behold Christ dying in our place and in an act of faith we flee to Christ for refuge, then godly fear is tempered into solemn reverence. And that's how the term is at last qualified when we think of the fear of God. A trembling fear that is tempered into solemn reverence as well as praise and thanksgiving. Instead of flaunting ourselves before Christ in such ways as to suggest that we're doing him a favor to worship him, we instead humbly bow before his throne and confess that he is king of kings and Lord of lords, and with grateful hearts that are mindful of the great cost of our salvation, we worship him in solemn and humble reverence, our hearts being filled with the peace and joy and thanksgiving of so great salvation. What an example Noah's faith provides us then. He took the warning of judgment seriously, and he was moved with fear, a fear that recognized that the warning was real, and a fear that compelled him to submit to God's provision for salvation. Noah's faith does one more thing for us as well. Would you consider with me finally that living by faith sets us against the world? Living by faith sets us against the world. Again, the words of verse 7. By faith Noah, being warned of God of things not seen as yet, moved with fear, prepared an ark to the saving of his house, by the which he condemned the world, and became heir of the righteousness which is by faith. See how the text tells us that Noah condemned the world? It doesn't say, does it, that he accommodated the world. It doesn't say that he made friends with the world, nor does it say that he tried to be like the world in order to reach the world. It says rather that he condemned the world. His actions, of course, accomplished that task. Can you imagine what others would have thought of a man who was devoted for years and even decades or more to the task of building an ark. Every board put in place and every nail driven into a board became a sermon. The sermon subject was remarkably consistent. Judgment is coming. Judgment is coming, but refuge can be found in the ark. Peter tells us in his second epistle that Noah was a preacher of righteousness. Basically, what Noah's life accomplished was to preach God's righteousness and the world's sinfulness and the need for salvation. So we may conclude that Noah's faith compelled him to be separated from the world, and Noah's faith enabled him to 
rise above the world. I've never forgotten the thrust of a message that Dr. Cairns preached from this pulpit when he was here way back in 2003. I don't remember his text or even his subject, but I do remember how he he devoted a lengthy portion of his message to the dangers facing the church. He noted that as wrong and sinful and blasphemous as the church of Rome was, the church of Rome was not the greatest threat to the church or even the ecumenical movement strongly connected to the church of Rome. He also noted how wrong and immoral and widespread homosexuality had become in our culture, but then added that he didn't feel that that was the greatest threat to the church either. And after naming a number of things that we have come to regard as so dangerous in our culture, he then expressed his view that the gravest danger to the church is worldliness. Worldliness, you see, has the power to nullify the testimony of the church or the testimony of the Christian. How many sinners there are in the world that laugh at those that attempt to witness to them because they virtually see no difference between that so-called Christian and themselves. I remember a man that I worked with in the printing industry many years ago that cited to me examples of this. He told me of people that came up to him and attempted to witness to him and He could name many areas in which he was more righteous than they were. Nullify your testimony. In our day, the same sins that you find in the world can largely also be found in the church. Same vices of the world can be found in the church. Same style of music, same immodesty, same Sabbath desecration. It's all there and it renders the testimony of the church to be largely null and void. This is why John tells us in his first epistle that we're to love not the world, neither the things that are in the world. If any man love the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes and the pride of life is not of the Father, but is of the world. And the world passeth away in the lust thereof, but he that doeth the will of God abideth forever. If we're going to live by faith the way Noah lived by faith, then our testimony should not accommodate the world. Our testimonies rather should condemn the world. And I might add here that there are times when you can speak more loudly by your absence than by your presence. I learned that very early on when the Lord saved me. I continued to go to those same social events that I went to as an unsaved sinner, and I discovered something that actually surprised me. Religion was a common and acceptable topic of discussion. Of course, it's all in the context of the world and all that's going on in the world and all the pleasurable vices in the world. But when I stopped showing up to those gatherings, those beer-drinking, pot-smoking gatherings, then all of a sudden people wanted to, what's wrong with Jeff? 
Where's Jeff? Why is Jeff not here? What Doesn't he like us? Does he think that we're wrong? And my absence was more powerful than my presence in that situation. We should be seen as apart from the world and above the world. And this is not to say that we approach the world with a chip on our shoulder and act as if we're more righteous than those in the world. Oh, that is hardly the case. We recognize our righteousness as a gift. We own our sinfulness before the world. That is a very effective tactic for witnessing. Own your own sinfulness before the world. Let them know, if I received what I deserved from God apart from Christ, I would be hell-bound and hell-deserving. And I acknowledge that. Then, of course, the follow-up question is, can you acknowledge it? And very often it will be their pride that's revealed rather than yours. You approach it that way. Notice that our text points out that Noah became heir of the righteousness which is by faith. The righteousness which comes by faith is the righteousness of Christ. And when this righteousness comes to us by faith, it eliminates any grounds for boasting on our part. So our condemnation of the world does not spring from a sense of self-righteousness. Indeed, self-righteousness is the very thing that infects much of the world. Our condemnation of the world comes through the humility that we manifest as we acknowledge the altogether insufficiency of self-righteousness. How then do we live by faith? Well, based on Noah's example, we can say that we live by faith by taking God's warning seriously. We live by faith when we are moved by fear, a fear that leads us to reverential awe as we contemplate Christ and his atoning death. And we live by faith when we are transformed by the renewing of our minds in such a way that we are not conformed to this world. I wonder this afternoon as we bring our meeting to a close, are you living by faith? Do you take the word of God seriously? Are you governed by the unseen spiritual realities that lead you out of the world to look for a city whose builder and maker is God? Do you see this world as being transient in nature, not something that you want to cleave too strongly to? Oh, may the Lord help us then to live by faith. May the Lord indeed increase our faith. And may the Lord give us such clear views of the glory of Christ that our desire will be to be conformed to his image, transformed by the renewing of our minds, that we may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. Let's close then in prayer. O oh Lord, as we bow in thy presence now and bring this meeting to a close, we thank thee for what thou hast revealed in thy word about what it means to walk by faith. We pray, Lord, that thou wilt help us in our walk with Christ to use and not abuse the things of this world. May we cling to nothing in this world too strongly. 
knowing as we do that it's going all to give way to a better world to come when Christ returns. May we live in the realities of the truth of the gospel. And, O Lord, may our faith in Christ grow ever stronger, that we, we may stand out all the more, especially in such dark days as these. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.